Hi ladies. So I have a confession to make. When I was teaching women's Bible study earlier this morning, I forgot to press the record button. So here I am talking to my phone, but I'm imagining speaking to all you ladies who are listening and I really hope this is encouraging for you. So we're diving back into our study of Habakkuk this morning or this evening as I'm recording. Well, I grew up saying Habakkuk, and I'm not sure who else is in this the same boat as me, so bear with me as I try to be consistent saying Habakkuk. Um, and how I remember is that it kind of sounds like I'm sneezing, so Habakkuk, bless you. <laughs> so I'm hoping that I'll be able to remember as I teach. Well, the name Habakkuk is actually quite beautiful. It has a very special meaning. It means embrace. And it's no coincidence that the journey described in this book is about the struggle to embrace the truth of God's judgment and God's plan. And I don't know about you, but I can resonate with this journey, the struggle to embrace God's plan that seems so perplexing or confusing at times. And as we study, we are on the journey with Habakkuk. We are jumping into this raw and real dialogue today. Last week, Eva led us through verses 1 to 4, where we see Habakkuk cry out to God for justice. And today, we will read God's response. So it's Habakkuk 1, 5 to 11. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth, to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it reveals about you. I pray that we would have open hearts to hear what you have to say to us through this passage. Please speak to me. May speak through me. And may we see you more clearly today. All right. Well, how many of you have heard of Corey Ten Boone? Most of you. I wonder how many of you have heard of Betsy, the lesser known sister. Well, just a little background. Both sisters were arrested for helping harbor Jews from Nazis in Holland during World War II. They were sent to a German concentration camp. And as we know, the living conditions in those camps were inhumane. The barracks were particularly dreadful. They packed hundreds of women into cramped bunk bed-like beds. They couldn't even sit upright without hitting their heads on the decks above. The smell and the frigid temperatures were unbearable. And Betsy and Corey were women of faith, and they prayed to God to sustain them. And Corey tells in her book that shortly after they arrived, fleas infested their barracks. And as if it could not get any worse. Her sister Betsy was convicted by scripture to rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances. 
She started thanking God for being placed in the same barrack as Corey, for the Bible in her hand, for the crowded barracks because more people could hear about Jesus. She even thanked God for the fleas. Corey shares that there was no way even God could make her grateful for the fleas. Betsy ended up getting sick and was allowed to stay in the barracks knitting throughout the day where she continued to read the Bible with the other women, teaching them about God. They had remarkable freedom inside their barrack with little harassment from the guards. This was puzzling. It's really odd. Until one day, Betsy needed to ask a guard to come inside the barrack to help her with the situation. To her surprise, Betsy learned that the guards wouldn't step foot in their barracks. When she asked why, the guard said, it's because the place was crawling with fleas. You mean the fleas were a good thing? Even in that horrible situation, God was still in control and he was still accomplishing his good plan. The gospel was going out. Women were hearing the truth, all because the fleas God used to protect the barracks and provide them relief from the guards' harassment. What seemed like a nuisance, God used for their good. What a crazy example of how God's ways are so beyond our understanding. And I wonder how many of us have been in a situation where we didn't receive the answer we had hoped for, leaving us perplexed by God's ways. Where do we look for hope and strength in these situations? How do we rejoice as Betsy did, and as we see Habakkuk eventually um, rejoice at the end of the book? As we study God's response in our passage today, we will be reminded of four truths to cling to when we are grappling with God's ways. Look up. God is at work, verse 5. Zoom out, God is in control, verse 6. Hold tight, God is just, verse 7 to 11. Humble yourself, God is trustworthy, verse 11. So we jump into our text today in verse 5. In the verses prior, we saw Habakkuk crying out to God in distress at the rampant wickedness all around him. He was overwhelmed and turned to God in desperation. How long will you let your people live in wickedness? Why are you tolerating this injustice? Why don't you act? And so from all appearances, God had left his people to self-destruct. But we see in our text that God had not left. In fact, God answered Habakkuk's burning question, and we don't want to miss this important detail. God answers we serve a God who not only hears us when we cry to him, but always answers. Maybe the answer brings everything we've wanted. Maybe it's not at all what we'd hoped. Maybe it's the dreaded wait. He is not indifferent or distant. He is loving and he's a loving God who hears our prayers. If we look back at verse 3, we see that God addresses Habakkuk's prayer specifically. Habakkuk cries out, why do you make me see iniquity? Or in the NIV, it says, why do you make me look at injustice? And how does God respond? Look, look at the nations. God begins with reorienting Habakkuk's perspective. He calls him to look up, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. It's instructive. Habakkuk is so discouraged by injustice as far as the eye can see. And God is saying, look again. Lift your eyes up. Watch what I'm doing on a wider scale. How often are we consumed with our dire circumstances? And not to diminish how intense they can be, 
But how often do we look only at the horizontal and don't lift our eyes to the vertical? Our view is limited by our own vision and experience, sucked into a spiral of doubt and despair. But God sees the end from the beginning. He sees the whole picture. Our decisions and judgments are completely affected by time, space, and mortality. God stands outside of all three. He's transcendent. God is saying, look up, for I am doing a work in your days. Habakkuk, you don't see what I see. I'm doing something right now. It's as though God is emphasizing, you don't think I'm tolerating, or you think I'm tolerating, or I'm ignorant or inactive. Well, contrary to what you think, my plan is in motion. It is happening as we speak. It's in operation. Not in the future, but right now. In your days. God is not passive in history. It's literally his story, right? So often we limit God to see what... Um, so often we limit God to what we can see, but God is always at work even when we can't. And his work is so beyond our understanding. Courtney Riesig quoted, the architect of all creation can dream up things we never would imagine. What better example of this than the coming Jesus? What's more astounding than the incarnation? Like talk about unexpected and baffling. The Son of God coming into the world as a baby to be our Savior and forever King. We might not understand God's ways, but we can trust that He's working and He hears us. Isaiah 55, 8-9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Is there a circumstance in your life where you feel like God is indifferent or inactive? Where does his work seem invisible? Where do you need to trust his plan and believe that he is working? Look up. God is at work. The end of verse 5 leaves us feeling kind of hopeful, optimistic even. Habakkuk is reminded that God hears and God is doing something about the wickedness. So here we go. God starts. For behold, verse 6, Habakkuk must have been on the edge of his seat. Finally, an answer to injustice. I am raising up the Chaldeans. Hmm. Interesting. Never heard of them. Hmm. That bitter and hasty nation. Wait, that doesn't sound so good. Who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Habakkuk must have thought, this is getting worse. Okay, this is taking a dark turn. Not exactly the answer Habakkuk was expecting. I imagine chills were probably going down Habakkuk's spine hearing God's response. Habakkuk knew what happened to the northern kingdom. This was sounding a lot like when Assyria ruthlessly invaded Samaria about a century before. Um, God, so your answer to my question of injustice is more injustice at the hand of a terrifyingly evil and cruel nation? Uh, yikes. <laughs> I wonder if Habakkuk wanted to backpedal a bit after he heard God's answer. How often do we too limit God, crying out to him to fix something, but we want him to do it in our way? Something like this. I wonder if you've had a similar situation. Dear God, would you please fix my relationship with my family member? But 
Could you do it in a way that doesn't cause us to suffer too much or have to reopen old wounds? Maybe sometime in the near month, in the next month, and preferably before we go on vacation together. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I know that God is sovereign, but I act as though I'm the sovereign one. Can you relate? We may pray God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think in Ephesians 3.20. But secretly, we tend to restrict that ability to what we can cope with. Verse 6 reads, I am raising up. God is reminding Habakkuk that even the most intimidating earthly power is under his authority. I love that God starts with this reminder. Oh, it's so reassuring. The nations are pawns for his purposes. Nothing happens that is outside of his control. Without this truth, the news of this horrible judgment will be absolutely crushing. Yes, God is going to use the Chaldeans as an instrument of justice on sinful Judah. But rest assured, it is all within his sovereign plan. God was reminding Habakkuk to zoom out, to look at the scope of God's power and control. What situation seems hopeless to you beyond your control? In which circumstance do you need to zoom out and trust that God is on the throne and is in control? So God has finally answered. He is going to raise up the Chaldeans to judge the wickedness in Judah. Okay, wait. So who are the Chaldeans? The Chaldeans were a small nobody group of tribes on the other side of the Arabian desert. And I found the map on page 15 in our study book really helpful if you want to look there. The tribes joined forces and captured Babylon from mighty Assyria and quickly grew in power. And it's at this point that the Chaldeans and Babylonians became virtually equivalent. That's why if you have the NIV translation, you will see them use the term Babylonians in verse in this verse. History tells us that, the, that Babylon rose to power rapidly, becoming the world's superpower, when 20 years earlier, they were virtually non-existent. So I have a trivia question for you. The Babylonian Empire was at the height of its power under which famous king? Did you guess King Nebuchadnezzar? You're right. <laughs> the, next verse, the next verses paint a terrifying picture of this nation. They are described as this unstoppable war machine sweeping across the earth like a sandstorm, conquering everything in its path. In verse 7, they do whatever they please, subject to no authority. They are a law unto, unto themselves. They didn't operate under any Geneva Convention or respect for human rights. In verse 8, they are likened to a variety of creatures. And sadly, no ladies. They are not funny, fluffy bunnies. The Lord describes a chilling image of predators leopards, wolves, and eagles with killer instincts and an intent on a devouring. Their attacks would be swift, intense, and insatiable. This is a picture of unrestrained aggression. They would be a military power attacking with speed and violence. I'll spare you the gory details, but you can read Jeremiah 52 to get a glimpse of how ruthless the Babylonians were to King Zedekiah when they captured Jerusalem. And we know in Deuteronomy that God promised blessing upon God's people if they obeyed him and quite graphic curses if they disobeyed. 
And in Deuteronomy 28, God specifies that the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. We see the same wording in our passage of the eagle swooping to devour. Have you ever seen the speed at which a bird of prey swoops down? They're like fighter jets reaching incredible speeds with precision in their attack. Not a reassuring picture. Judah is reaping the consequences of their disobedience. In verse 9, it continues. We see an image of a sandstorm. Sand is helpless. It's consumed by the, by the wind and transported for miles. This was a typical practice of the Babylonians, to cap, take captives and spread them across the empire. Can anyone think of a famous Babylonian exile or captive? If you guess Daniel, you're right. <laughs> he, along with the other Israelite nobility, were relocated to the heart of Babylon when Judah was captured. In verse 10, they mock and ridicule kings and rulers, along with their feeble fortresses. Even the most powerful nations like Egypt were swept away like sand. History tells us that the Babylonians were skilled at siege warfare, creating ramps from earth matching the heights of city walls. Even the most impenetrable walls were nothing to them. Habakkuk must have been distraught. God was going to use a cruel and heartless empire to judge his people. But at the end of verse 11, for all their vile acts, God pronounces them what? Guilty men. Here is their hint that they don't get off scot-free. Verse 11 reassures us that God will not overlook the sins of Babylon. They are guilty men whose might is their God. If they are guilty, they must suffer the judgment that is due them. Later in Habakkuk, we learn that the tables will turn on the Babylonians and they will receive the cup of God's judgment. History tells us that the Babylonian empire fell very suddenly and very unpleasantly to the Persians under Cyrus the Great in 539 BC. They experienced the same brutalities that they had previously inflicted upon the Jews. One commentary said it this way, the once great city, the queen of the world, was defeated, devastated, and despoiled. God is just and will not let the guilty go unpunished. For those of us who cry out with Habakkuk at the injustice in the world, it is reassuring to know that God will judge in his way and in his time. Hold tight. Remain patient. He will act. But the Bible also says that we are all under judgment. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all guilty. And we know a debt must be paid for sin. Thank God that Jesus paid that price for us. He took our guilt and shame upon himself, atoning for our sins. When we repent and trust in Christ, we receive that gift of grace and mercy. We don't receive the punishment we deserve. You know the lyrics. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. I just want us to look a little closer at verse 11 before we close. We see the Babylonians treated the 
we see the Babylonians trusted in themselves and their military might. They ascribed their success to their own strength. But ultimately, they only had victory because God allowed it. The danger of trusting in one's own strength is repeated in Jeremiah 17.5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. The end of verse 11 is giving us an important clue. We see this theme of trusting in the Lord and his strength weaving through Habakkuk. Turn with me to the end of the book. We see in chapter 3, verse 19, that Habakkuk finally embraces this truth. He says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. In contrast with the wicked Babylonians, the people of God are to live by faith, by humbling themselves and relying on the strength of God. We see here the, stri- the scripture is calling us to examine our own lives. In what areas of your life are you tempted to make your might your God? Where are we tempted to be self-reliant and trust in our own abilities and power? People of faith don't trust in their own might, but trust in God. So as we close... God's response to Habakkuk is instructive for us today. When we pray to God and receive an unexpected or unwanted answer, we can cling to truths about God to help us live by faith. God is at work even when we can't see. Nothing happens that is outside his control. God is just and will judge in his time and in his way. And finally, God is trustworthy, so lean into him for strength. I pray that our journey would be that of Habakkuk's. The ESV study Bible put it this way, although Habakkuk may not fully understand, he has learned to rely totally on the wisdom and justice of God to bring the proper resolution in ways he could never have imagined. May we be able to pray these words with Daniel and exile in Babylon. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. God uses what he pleases, even the fleas, to work out his plan in our lives for our good and his glory. Can we trust him in that? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the book of Habakkuk. Thank you for the truths we can cling to when the world around us is spinning. Please, God, teach us to live by faith when faced with injustice and trials. Help us to hold tight, remain patient, and be still, and know that you are God. Amen.